Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 76. Psalm chapter 76. You may remember it's been quite a while. I preached uh, New Year's Eve day, uh, or New Year's Day um, here back in uh, a couple months ago. But before that, I've been preaching through the Psalms of Asaph. Um, There's disagreement whether these Psalms were written by Asaph or for Asaph to sing. Um, Asaph was a musician under uh, King David. He sang in the tabernacle. He played the cymbals. Uh, He was a Levite, so he was of the priestly line. Um, So uh, whether these psalms are of Asaph or for Asaph, or whether he wrote some of them and didn't write the others, um, regardless, I've been working through uh, Psalm 73 through Psalm 83. Um, so we covered Psalm 73 back, I don't know, it was probably a year and a half or two ago, and then Psalm 74 and Psalm 75 over the past uh, year and a half. Um, Psalm 73, we saw that, uh, you know, Asaph or whoever the speaker was had seen the success of unbelievers around him, and he was like, what's the, what's the point, right? Why, why do I have to live right when those around me are getting all these good things and they don't have to live right. Um, And if you remember or you're familiar with the psalm, at the end he says that he came into the sanctuary and then he saw that God was good. Psalm 74, a lesser known psalm, um, we learn to appeal to God based on his glory, Christ's righteousness, and God's promises. And then Psalm 75, we saw the comfort of knowing that God is judge. You're like, God is judge? That's a comfort? Yes, it's a comfort. Go back and listen to it on Sermon Audio if if you want to learn more. All right, so here we find ourselves today in Psalm 76. And I'm just kind of a little bit background of why I wanted to preach through some psalms is because I preached uh, in uh, hermeneutics class in college, I think one psalm. I'd maybe preached another psalm one time. But I just wanted to get into an Old Testament um, book and uh, help me become a a more well-rounded preacher. Um, You know, Pastor John tells us that we need to be whole Bible Christians, and I need to be a whole Bible preacher and um, help you as as the congregation uh, learn more from an Old Testament book. So here we are in Psalm 76. Uh, The title of my message today is God's Glory Causes Us to Fear Him. God's glory causes us to fear him. Let's, uh, let's pray, and then we'll read the passage. Dear God, we thank you for um, the gospel as we've been singing about, your justification, your sanctification that you work in us, your glorification that you'll one day give us. Um, God, we are so um, blessed to have you as our God, and, and God, I just in combination with studying the passage today and in singing the songs, I just uh, stood back and said, wow, that this God should love me and, and the rest of us here today. God, we thank you that you are such a all-powerful God, but you have uh, stooped down, you have transcended down to us um, to show us love through Christ on the cross. Um, help that to grip our hearts. Help us to, to run to Christ this week. Help us to live for you who died for us um, because of the great love that you've shown to us. 
God, help us uh, from this passage today to um, be gripped by more of your character than just your grace and just the gospel. Help us um, to then go out and uh, live, uh, live for you and live in response to this passage. Help us to be hearers of the word today and doers of the word the rest of the week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Psalm 76. Uh, a lot of you probably have the ESV today, and your title would say, Who Can Stand Before You? Or if you have another translation, it would say something very similar. Uh, it says uh, the subtitle there, To the Choir Master with Stringed Instruments, A Psalm of Asaph, A Song. So this was written as a song um, to be sung um, to the congregation of Israel. In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. His abode has been established in Salem, his dwelling place in Zion. There he broke the flashing arrows, the shield, the sword, and the weapons of war. Selah. Glorious are you, more majestic than the mountains full of prey. The stout-hearted were stripped of their spoil. They sank into sleep. All the men of war were unable to use their hands. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both rider and horse lay stunned. But you, you are to be feared. Who can stand before you when once your anger is roused? From the heavens you uttered judgment. The earth feared and was still. When God arose to establish judgment to save all the humble of the earth. Selah. Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. The remnant of wrath you will put on like a belt. Make your vows to the Lord your God and perform them. Let all around him bring gifts to him who is to be feared. Who cuts off the spirit of princes? Who is to be feared by the kings of the earth? So you can see it's kind of broken down in four verses. A lot of your Bibles probably broke that down into four sections. So those will be our four main points today. One through three uh, will be God is renowned or well-known. Verses four through six will be God is glorious and majestic. Verses uh, six, sorry, verses uh, seven through nine will be God is to be feared because of his judgment. And then verses 10 through 12 will be God is to be praised because of his sovereignty. And I'll say those again. So if you're taking notes, you don't have to worry about writing those down all at once. All right. <clears throat> um, it would be cool to know how this was sung as a song. Um, but since we're not, uh, we don't have access to how the Israelites back in the day sang this song, um, we're just going to go through it talking. All right, so God, first of all, is renowned or well-known. In verse 1, it says, In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. So we want to know, why is God well-known? Why is God well-known? And there's two main reasons here in verses 2 and 3 for that. First of all, because he dwells amongst his people. And secondly, because he defends his people for his name's sake. So in Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. You remember Judah was the, uh, you know, the two um, tribes of Israel that broke off. Um, but God is known in, in, in Judah, and his name is also great in Israel. And then next, uh, Salem is a shortened form of Jerusalem, according to one study, study Bible, because I was like, what's Salem? I didn't remember that it was a shortened version of Jerusalem. So... God abides with his people in Jerusalem. And not only that, but on the mountain of Zion. 
which was a mountain that King David had, um, had taken over. God dwells amongst his people. Psalm 46, verse 4, talking about uh, Jerusalem or Zion, um, the psalmist says, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is imminent. He is near to us. And for those of us who are believers in the church era today, we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. So first of all, why is God well known? Because he dwells amongst his people. Secondly, because he defends his people for his name's sake. You can see there in verse uh, 3, God broke all of the weapons of his enemy or enemies with just the word, as it says later in verse 6, at your rebuke. And God doesn't even have to speak to have that kind of power. He can just command it, and it's done. Flashing arrows can refer to the lightning or the thunder being shot by the enemy, which today that makes a lot more sense with our modern weaponry of guns and missiles. You know, we could see how somebody back in the day might have seen a a vision of that and uh, thought it was like lightning or thunder um, being shot. And God, here in this passage, destroys all of the weapons of war, all the implements of, of war and manslaughter. God can just, at a word, put, um, to destroy it. In the modern day, how many of us fear, you know, we hear the news and we hear of all these nuclear capabilities or the power of just a single EMP bomb and how that would, you know, wipe out our electrical grid and cause mass chaos. But our God is capable of destroying all implements of war with even an unspoken command. That's our God. In our 9 a.m. study, um, we've been going through um, Trusting God by Jerry Bridges. And uh, something that stood out to me from that book is God's sovereignty. The fact that God has control over every single molecule or atom. And that's just been, been uh, striking me because I, I don't know about you guys, but I do not trust God in my day-to-day life. I tend to worry about work stuff. I worry about financial stuff. I worry about social stuff. And God is in charge of it all, and he's purposefully and perfectly orchestrating all of the world's events for our sanctification and his glory. And we can trust him. And that's not the point of this sermon. So let's continue on. God doesn't simply defend his people and his dwelling from the enemies. God gets all of the glory, as we're now going to see, because of his great power and his majesty. God's enemies are like a mouse in the paw of a lion. God's enemies don't stand a chance. So next we're going to see that God is glorious and majestic. God is glorious and majestic. And we find this in verses 4 through 6. Glorious are you, more majestic than the mountains full of prey. The stout-hearted were stripped of their spoil. They sank into sleep. All the men of war were unable to use their hands. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both rider and horse lay stunned. God gets all of the glory over his enemies. No human organization or world power can rival our God. Humans have attempted to rival God since the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden. Remember, the the serpent said to Eve, you can be like God. So ever since the fall, we've been trying to rival God. We've been trying to 
get to his status, to be like him, to be above him even. Mankind's rebellion and desire to replace God as being in charge was also manifested in the Tower of Babel just a few chapters later in Genesis. So what did God do? He confuses their languages, and then they have to disseminate across the, across the world. Mankind rebelled and lived wickedly, so then God sent the flood to kill everyone except the family of Noah. And I mix those stories up. Obviously, Noah's before um, the Tower of Babel. Um, God wasn't reacting to these instances, but he was sovereignly making or allowing these circumstances to turn out so that he could get glory. Verse 6 strongly alludes to the Lord's salvation of the Israelites at the Red Sea when they were escaping from the Egyptians. It says here, both rider and horse lay stunned. I don't know of another Bible story where the, the horses and the riders were, were completely um, captured or captivated or, you know, the water came over them and they drowned. So this has strong allusions to, to the, um, God's salvation at the, at the Red Sea from the hand of the Egyptians. Egypt was another world empire, you know. So here again, God, God compared to his enemies is like a lion and his enemies are like a mouse in the lion's paw. Um, Egypt was a world, world empire, sought not to obey God when he told Pharaoh to let his people go. And at God's command, the Red Sea parted, let the Israelites uh, pass through on dry land. And, um, and then when the Egyptian soldiers tried to enter, what happened? The, the, uh, the water came over top of them. So verse 6, verses 5 also says, The stout-hearted were stripped of their spoil. They sank into sleep. All the men of war were unable to use their hands. Those Egyptians at the bottom of the Red Sea could do nothing to, uh, to fight God. And then throughout the rest of the wilderness wandering, God put down nations who he chose to judge and used other nations to judge the Israelites. Verse 5, backing up a step, strongly alludes to God's defeat over the army of Sennacherib. Almost all the commentaries I looked at said this is, this is the defeat of the army of Sennacherib. So I had to look it up because I wasn't super familiar with that. Um, and it's actually referenced in two places in the Old Testament. One place is in 2 Kings 19, 32 through 37. And then it's also recorded in Isaiah 37, 33 through 38, because that was a, uh, a chronologically the same time. So let me just read for you Isaiah 37, 33 through 38 to learn more about God's power uh, and how he displays that to get glory and, and majesty. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow. In verse uh, 3, we saw that God breaks the arrows. Um, or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return, and he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord, for I will descend, defend this city to save it. For my own sake, there he's getting the glory, right? And for the sake of my servant David. And verse 36 of Isaiah 37, and the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. 185,000 men, just dead. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed, returned home, and lived in Nineveh. And then his sons kill him, and another son takes over his kingdom. A lion with a mouse in his paw 
the mouse doesn't stand a chance. And that's our great God. God also displayed his glory uh, when Elijah challenged the people of Israel to choose between Baal and God in uh, 1 Kings 18, 20 through 40. The 450 prophets of Baal made a sacrifice and prayed to Baal to start a fire. You remember the story? And um, for their sacrifice, and there was no answer. And in verse 27 at noon, Elijah mocked them saying, cry aloud for it is your God Baal. Is he a God? Either he is musing or he's relieving himself or he's on a journey or perhaps he is asleep and must be woken up. Then Elijah prepared his altar with 12 stones, put a trench around it, and then the sacrifice, and then he had men fill four jars of water three times. I had to look the details up of this story. Such that it soaked everything and then also filled the trench. And then when Elijah prayed to Yahweh, verse 38 says, what happened? The fire of the Lord consumed everything, even the stones and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. So do you choose Baal or do you choose God? Today we choose God. Isaiah 40, verses 12 through 17. um, This is another passage about God's God's power in the light of man's finiteness. I don't know how to better say it. But Isaiah 40, verses 12 through 17, are talking about how all the nations in the world, we think, think of all the nations in the world. Think of all the world powers that are in the news that wor- tend to worry us when we're not trusting God's sovereignty, right? Think of Russia, China, the U.S., the European nations. Like, all of those world powers are so powerful. And what does Isaiah say about them? Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? And marked off the heavens with a span, and closed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales, and the hills in a balance. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult, or who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? Nobody. Nobody taught God anything. And then verse 15 of Isaiah 40 says, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Do they account for the dust on the scales? No, because it's so minor. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like a fine dust. That's our God. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. My, my analogy of a, of, a, of a mouse in the paw of a lion, it really doesn't grasp it. Really, we should use Isaiah's analogy. A drop of a bucket, a drop in a bucket, is what all of the nations in the world are like compared to our God. So we are thus taught that all, um, and then, sorry, John Calvin on this uh, verse here, verses 4 and 5 and 6, he says, we are thus taught that all the gifts and power which men seem to possess are in the hand of God, so that he can at any instant of time deprive them of the wisdom which he has given them, make their hearts effeminate, render their hands unfit for war, and annihilate their whole strength. It is not without reason that both the courage and power of these enemies are magnified. The design of this being that the faithful might be led from the contrast to extol the power and working of God. 
Although therefore we may be deprived of all created means of help, let us rest contented with the favor of God alone, accounting it all sufficient, since he has no need of great armies to repel the assaults of the whole world, but is able by the mere breath of his mouth to subdue and dissipate all assailants. That's our great God's power today. So what should this power cause us to do? We speak a lot of grace, and grace is a good thing. Grace cannot be talked about too much unless it excludes the rest of God's character. So what should we do in light of this great power? Verse 7 says the answer, But you, that's talking to, uh, the psalmist talking to God, you are to be feared. Who can stand before you when once your anger is roused? From the heavens you uttered judgment. The earth feared and was still. When God arose to establish judgment to save all the humble of the earth. So our response to God's power today is to fear him. Now, this fear is not the same thing as being afraid of the dark or afraid of lightning during a thunderstorm or being fearful when you're in a dark alley in a city or being afraid of talking to somebody or being afraid of a wild animal or being afraid of heights. That is a separate kind of fear. The fear of God can be defined uh, by uh, Rand Hummel as hating what God hates, loving what God loves, and having a fear of displeasing him. Let me say that one more time. Hating what God hates, loving what God loves, and having a fear of displeasing him. And again, that's not original to me. Rand Hummel, uh, a preacher, uh, once said that to me. Uh, a study, the CSB study Bible said, fear of God is a combination of humility, obedience, awe, and respect. And know that this God, this, this God, our powerful God, that can wipe out enemies with, the, with his mere breath or unspoken command, this God is not capricious. He does not act on a whim. And he has perfect judgment. Verse um, 8 says, From the heavens you uttered judgment, the earth feared and was still. So, we want to see that God is to be feared because of his judgment, um, but that has kind of two categories today. God's anger is perfectly righteous, so we can fear him, and God's grace and salvation is perfectly just, so we can fear him. So let's first see under these verses, God's anger is perfectly righteous. It's possible to have righteous anger, right? How many of us have perfect righteous anger? Yeah, none of us. Um, the Bible does command us in Ephesians 4.26 to be angry and do not sin. I think I've seen one or two people do that in, in my entire life. Very few of us can, can have a perfectly selfless uh, anger. Most of our anger is because, uh, Ethan, I've told you the same, the same thing, the same time, four or five times, you're not listening, pay attention. Or Luke, hey, don't run into the road, don't run into the road. Our anger is uh, often selfish. It's normally because we're too busy doing the rest of life. Something comes up and we can't handle it and we get angry. But that's not our God. He has a, an anger that is perfectly righteous. Remember um, 
in Matthew 21 is one account of it. You can look in the other Gospels, and there's other accounts of it. But Jesus had perfectly righteous anger in the temple, right? People were uh, depriving others of money. They were making money off of selling animals for the sacrifices. And uh, Jesus uh, made a whip, and he went in, tossed the money off their tables, and um, told them they were basically fools, and why um, desecrate God's, God's house that way. Um, 2 Kings 17, 17 and 18 talk about God also having anger, and they burned their sons and their daughters, this is the people of Israel, as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. Psalm 7, verse 11, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. So our God has anger that's perfectly righteous. And so we should fear him. And then next, God's grace and salvation is perfectly just. And so we should fear him. Verses 8 and 9, from the heavens you uttered judgment, the earth feared and was still. When God arose to establish judgment to save all the humble of the earth, Selah. Remember, God's justice doesn't get removed at the cross. God's justice doesn't get removed when he, from him when he saves people. It's not like God wakes up one day and has judgment and judges the world for their sin, and then the next day he wakes up and saves those who believe in him. God has both of those every day. Romans 3, 25 and 26, um, referring to Jesus' propitiation might help us with understanding this. Um, as Paul explains um, justification, God, the act of God declaring us righteous. He says, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God doesn't, when God saves us, he doesn't say, you aren't, you aren't a sinner. He's declaring us as if we had never sinned. And the only way he can do that is, as we sang today, through Christ's work. Christ is our hope in life and death. And then um, we sang complete in thee about uh, our justification. So God's grace, salvation is perfectly just, and so we should fear him. And then our next response is found in verses 10 through, 10 through 12. We also are to praise God. God is to be praised because of his sovereignty. God is to be praised because of his sovereignty. Verses 10 through 12 says, Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. The remnant of wrath you will put on like a belt. Make your vows to the Lord your God and perform them. Let all around him bring gifts to him who is to be feared. Who cuts off the spirit of princes? Who is to be feared by the kings of the earth? Verse 10 um, We'll get into what the first half of that verse means, but the second half of that verse says, the remnant of wrath you will put on like a belt. Other translations translate that, uh, like the King James says, the remainder of wrath shalt thou restrain. The NIV says something similar. So what does the first half of that verse mean? Though? Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. So we just talked about how God is perfectly righteous 
and in his anger. Um, but now we're talking about the, the wrath or the anger of man. How can that praise God? And um, this again goes back to our, to our study from Trusting God by Jerry Bridges, because in that it's, he's talked about how every sin of man can um, produce what God wants um, to happen. In, on Easter, Pastor John uh, spoke uh, part, in part from Acts 2, and in, in that chapter, verses 23 and 24, it says that Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you, uh, this is uh, one of the apostles uh, preaching to the, to the uh, Jews, says, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, but God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So even our sin will bring glory to God. He has the ability, ability to restrain our sin or to use it for his glory. Spurgeon, uh, in his commentary on this, says, It shall not only be overcome, but rendered subservient to thy glory. Man with his breath of threatening is but blowing the trumpet of the Lord's eternal fame. Furious winds often drive vessels the more swiftly into port. The devil blows the fire and melts the iron, and then the Lord fashions it for his own purposes. Let men and devils rage as they may, they cannot do otherwise than subserve the divine purposes. Even Hitler, even Putin, God used them for his glory. And that's not to say that God loves death. God does not love the death that those men have, have uh, done, the, the people that they've killed. But even the wrath of man, even the worst things that mankind can do, God has a purpose for. Philippians 2, verses 10 through 11, um, talk about how all people will one day worship God for who he is. It says that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So even Putin, even Hitler, even the worst men in the world, even the worst things that men have done, um, even those men will bow to Jesus saying that he is Lord. Exodus 14.4 says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And um, Romans 9.17, commenting on that passage, says, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So what's our response? Our response is to fear him, first of all, like we saw, and then next to praise him. Uh, and it's talking about vows. Make your vows to the Lord your God and perform them. Let all around him bring gifts to him who is to be feared. Who cuts off the spirit of princes and who is to be feared by the kings of the earth? So there's, there's two sides to this, right? If you vow something to God, fulfill it. If you've said to God that you will do something, the Bible warns a lot of, against vowing something and then not doing it. So here it's just reminding us, if you've said something to God that you'll do, make sure you do it. But the flip side of that is, God doesn't want external vows and offerings, right? He wants our hearts to obey him. Psalm 51, 16 and 17 says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. 
The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart of God you will not despise. And then Micah 6, 6 through 8, a parallel passage says, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the, bo- the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. So God wants our hearts today. So we've seen um, from Psalm 76 that, first of all, God is renowned or well-known. God's glorious and majestic. And so our response is that he, God is to be feared because of his judgment. God is to be praised because of his sovereignty. So leaving today, how do, we, how do we live that out? How do we fear God? How do we praise God? First of all, you can fear God by acknowledging God throughout each part of each day. Having that hate for what God hates, love for what God loves, and a fear of displeasing him. We so often go throughout our day and have never acknowledged God through prayer, never acknowledged him through realizing that he has control over circumstances. So first of all, fear God by acknowledging him throughout each day. And then second way to fear God would be to hate your pet sins like God does. Hate your pet sins like God does. And then uh, next, don't think of God as only a gracious God. Don't overemphasize his grace and forget that he is a powerful judge. Fear him. Have awe or respect for him. And then uh, how do we praise God? Take time to praise God in the middle of good and in the middle of bad. When God gives you a, a, a difficult circumstance this week, praise him. And then praise him for having perfect justice and that perfect justice that also gave us salvation in Christ. So these are just a few, a few ways you may think of other applications about how to fear God and praise God because of his power, because he's well-known, because he, he's glorious and majestic, and because he has perfect sovereignty. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for this psalm. Thank you for the aspects of it that uh, are only found in this psalm. Um, Thank you that you are glorious and majestic, that you have uh, a mouse in your hand, so to speak, as a lion. And um, the nations in the world, God, help us not to fear them, but to fear you. Um, who compares them just to a drop in the bucket. And um, God, help us to praise you as we go throughout the week, um, that we would praise you for who you are and uh, what you've done for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.